You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone. We're coming to the end of Season 2 of Turning to the Mystics, where we've been turning to the 16th century mystic, St. Teresa of Avila, and her beautiful book, The Interior Castle. Uh, We have two more episodes this week and next week, and in both episodes, we're turning to questions from our audience. So we're so grateful for the questions, and I think you'll see they draw a lot of wisdom from Jim. So thank you for the those people that sent them in. Let's get started. Welcome, Jim. Good to see you. (laughs) We've come to the end of the beautiful work by St. Teresa of Avila, the interior castle. And today we're taking questions from listeners. I wondered if you had any, you've read through a lot of the questions. Do you have any just initial overall reflections about what you've been seeing? Yes, I read them all. Um, I thought they were very good in the sense that um, what she's saying here, she's really writing this as spiritual direction for guidance for those who are drawn to move toward these more contemplative ways of experiencing God's presence. And these questions that people are asking are the kinds of questions people ask. Mm-hmm. I mean, because like, what about this and what about that? Either around the prayer itself or these gray states of consciousness or as it applies to events in their life because it touches things that we've gone through or things we're presently going through. So that the questions were just sounded like they were real, like real yeah. questions that people trying to walk this walk. It's so nice to get them at the end of the season, isn't it? To, mm-hmm. to know how it's been it reaching is. people and, and yeah. yeah. So um, the first question is from Lynn, and she says she's in the first dwelling of the interior castle where it says, unless these souls strive to heal their profound misery, they will be turned into pillars of salt just like Lot's wife was changed when she looked back. And she wondered what that, what that yes. meant. You know, uh, the reason in this series we started with Thomas Merton is because he's contemporary. So a lot of his language and the way he words things, he's the spirit of our age. And so partly when we read these classical mystics, one, we're getting to the depth and beauty of their teachings, but we're also getting into the language of a previous period of history and the things they refer to in scripture, the images that they use. And we're kind of, uh, it's like learning a new language in a mm-hmm. way, kind of the spirit of the age and how it, the, the mystical uh, gift runs through all the ages, but each age incarnates it in its own language. It has its own ambiance to it. And so the, the story of Lot's wife, you know, uh, turning to look back and turn into a pillar of salt as a punishment. So really, it's a kind of a, 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 a metaphorical story on um, uh, that it's not wise to not humbly do God's will. You know. So I, uh, I think for Teresa, we need to understand when she refers to things like this, we always need to see them in the light of her foundational principle that God is love, 
the God whose love lives in the innermost center of your soul. And the whole reason God creates you is to is for God to give himself, to give herself to you in love. So it's the spirit of the gospel, it's the spirit of love. So any interpretation contrary to that is contrary to her intentions. And so I think it's seen in that way. She's using it, uh, I would say, as a poetic metaphor to be very careful about uh, being indifferent uh, when it comes to the matters of the love of God. Just like in a marriage, be very careful about taking each other for granted. Be very careful about intentionally doing anything to hurt each other. Be very careful because if you're not careful, you turn into a pillar of salt. That is, you know, it'll it'll go dead in the water mm -hmm. on you. If you're not careful. Mm -hmm. I think it's more like mm -hmm. that. You know. Thank you, Jim. The next question from Corey uh, refers to your experience of being a psychotherapist, and he's asking you about a particular form of psychotherapy that he's come across called internal family systems and wondering if yes. you've heard about it yes i, I am aware mm -hmm. of that and uh, i've used in my own trauma work i've used a variation of that which really has to do with understanding uh subsystems of the personality that are formed in trauma and how one learns to work with those aspects of the self that are still caught in a traumatized state moving toward an integrative, more reality-based way of living. It's a very, can be a very helpful way of helping people work through internalized trauma. Uh, and then the person points out this uh, fasc fascinating affinity with that, to some of the implications of these mystical teachings. And uh, so this is really, this is the book I'm writing now on uh, contemplative dimensions of healing. Thank you, Jim. This is really central to your teaching, bringing, bringing together the, the spiritual, the psychological, the trauma, the healing. Yeah, that, that whole. So yeah. thank you for sharing that. Um, so Jim, the next question is from AU from Indonesia. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Uh, so I'll just read her question. I often feel guilty whenever I don't do ministry outside of my family life. I'm a wife and mum with two sons, 12 and 6 years old. Recently, due to COVID and online learning, my husband asked me to stop working as a part-time teacher to, slip, to simplify life and reduce stress. And so she, her question is, I know ministry has to be born out of the silence and spaciousness and not a tool to feed our ego, but how do I navigate these things? How can I be grounded in the presence of God within, uh, within, and perhaps from there come something or perhaps nothing and be okay with yes. it? Yeah, that she's, she's showing up this issue about how does a person in a marriage with children, how do they balance the realities of their marriage and parenting with their career? especially if their career is a part of their identity and also it's a form of service to people. And so I think it's, a, it's a, like a marriage therapy question in a way. But then I want to add a little spiritual caveat to it. It's for she and her husband to stay in ongoing dialogue with each other. You know, that he is being honest with her that he thinks it would be in her best interest, especially does he have some evidence that she is stressed. And then where is she at and what it would be like to give up the work that she does? And is he attentive to that? And is she attentive to him? 
and his concerns and how by ongoing lovingly dialoguing back and forth, you know, how they kind of find their way towards sorting that out. Uh, a little thought she makes about feeling guilty about quitting where she's not being helpful to the community. And um, there can be truth to that. I think people in forms of service to the community, there's a spiritual meaning of that to them that enriches their life by enriching the lives of others. But I think spiritually, especially from the standpoint of the mystics, you know, Teresa of Avila, she says um, that uh, God does not see the magnitude of the work that we do, but God sees the love with which we do it. And so to be home for the quality of the marriage, to be home for the quality of the parenting, and to be home as a kind of a contemplative married person in that, then there's, there's a value to that. And maybe as they sort it all out too, it doesn't have to be either or. You know, they have to, it's that kind, it's a very practical kind of life situation question. How does she discern it? But her prayer then is in prayer asking God for guidance. You know, like shed light on this for me. Like all things considered, how do I kind of find my way here through this? Like help my husband and I. Uh, to kind of do it in a way that rings true, you know, in your will. And, you know. and, and you know, I would add, too, to that, that this is what I mean by talking it through, where it's not necessarily either or. You know, for example, because of COVID and because of home, those children learning at home, um, if she would go to the school and say, if I would temporarily take a leave of that, you know, not work as a part-time teacher, could I be assured of getting back in? Or am I running the risk of not getting rehired, for example? Or could I do part-time, like on a substitute, cut down my number of, you know, just that kind of practical step-by-step -step way of settling into something that feels mm -hmm. right. And how to ground the whole thing in prayer, asking for God's guidance and wisdom. Yeah, you know. yeah. So to get move beyond uh, the guilt or the... The, the sense of meaning that she has into the practicalities and then come back to the prayer with with some yeah. more practical yeah i think very often this is where spiritual direction touches yeah. therapy often the tripping point isn't in the practical details it's the, it's the guilt yes and then the question is where's the guilt coming right. from like where's that coming from like am i good enough yet am i helpful enough yet am i doing enough yet see or maybe is the guilt uh, just how meaningful it is for her to realize the role she's playing in the lives of the children that mm -hmm. she teaches. So anyway, th those things, it's a therapy, spiritual direction mm -hmm. kind of practical real life question. Yeah. yeah. I really find it helpful, Jim, when you do um, your teachings on just a reminder that uh, that God meets us no matter where we are. So in each aspect yeah, of her yeah. story, in the guilt, God's right there in the sense of um, meaning in her job, right there in the sense. So how, how can you find God even in the places where it feels like God's not not present? Uh, yeah, and I'll say something else here too. I thought often this way, what these people are saying. And it's, 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 it's very difficult to do this, really. How can I learn from God not to let the conditions and circumstances that I'm in determine the foundational condition of my mm. heart. How can I have my heart grounded in this deepening intimacy with God's infinite love for me as the basis out of which 
I work with the constantly shifting circumstances of my life. See? Because if we, if we lose that taproot, it absolutizes the circumstantial. The circumstantial you know? But if we can find a taproot that transcends it, but is the light at which we discern the circumstantial, that's, uh, that's helpful, I think, to learn that art. Yeah. Very helpful. Thank you. The next question from Janice is asking about the word righteous. Uh, and uh, she says that she was in a 12-step program and that through that program she feels like the use of the word righteous is arrogant and judgmental. So can you explain how Teresa might be using that word? Yes. You know, uh, it's good with AA, too, or the spirituality. A lot, there's a very deep contemplative connection between AA and the steps of AA and con- this, this path. And see, let's say what AA, what AA is helping people focus on is self-righteousness, where you're self-righteous. And very often the addict will have a self-righteous attitude and being denial of their addiction or being in denial of the effects of their addiction on the loved ones in the family, and they get indignant about it, like self-righteous. And uh, so a lot of the, 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 the deeper layers of sobriety through inventory and amends and conscious contact with God is the healing of that into a stance of humility, a stance of admitting, a stance of... Because what Teresa means by righteousness is the gospel meaning of righteousness. You know, it's the righteousness of love. That it's, it's righteous because we're established in God's infinite love for us as precious in our brokenness. And we stand in the mercy of the righteousness of God through a humble-like faith. That's a very different meaning, you know. Yeah. Yes. Wonderful. Thank you. The next question from Bill, he says, As I learn more about the false self and the letting go of all striving for spiritual experience in my interior life, I am thankful that my God has arrested me. From, from the spirit that Merton expresses in his prayer, I'm not sure if what I'm doing is correct. I know my desire to seek my beloved is pleasing to my God. I'm wrestling with such a basic question, I'm almost embarrassed to ask. Why does God want us to pray for others, and what is, what is the ask? Even as I type this question, it is so hard for me to put into words my question. Yes. Sometimes I'll say people, you know, the best questions are the dumbest questions. Because they feel dumb because we're not used to struggling to find the words to express subtle things, you know. So there's nothing dumb about it, really. It raises a very deep question. And the deep que- it has to do with the prayer of intercession, mm-hmm. see, praying for people. Because at one level, God is infinitely love with everybody. How I put it is, let's say your Aunt Mildred is dying. And so you pray to God, dear God, please help Aunt Mildred. It isn't as if God says it silently, dying, I didn't even know she was sick. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get over there right away. I mean, thank goodness you told me. Why am I always the last one to find this out? That's not possible. God knows that Aunt Mildred's dying, for God's sakes, and she's doing fine. I mean, what's this death business about? You know, she's come to the, who's to to say? You know, trying to say. So it isn't that. What I think it is is this, two things. When we pray for people, it's actually, it's, it's deepening 
are God-based love for other people. Mm. See? See, we're weaving into our love for God, our love for this person. And really, in a way, the prayer of intercession is helping us to be more attentive to the mystery and the presence of God. And what we're really praying for is that they're open to God's will. That if it is your will that they get better, they recover, they get better, so they can die later, because everyone's dying. But I hope they get better, because maybe it's sad. Maybe they have children. Maybe it's sad if it is your will. But what I'm really pulling for is that whatever is done that she restored to health, that if not, that she accept your will, that your, her life is in your hands and her death is in your hands, like mine. And I would hope that she would find that peace, which is acceptance and death. There's another mystery to this, though, too, that there's power in intercessory prayer. See, there's, power, there's a certain efficacy in our grace interconnectedness with each other. Mm. See, and so the very urgency with which someone prays for someone might be the urgency that stirs the presence of God in that person's life. And so it's, it's kind of woven into the, like the interiority of the incarnational interconnectedness mm. with each other. Like the mystical body, we're all woven and connected into each other. Mm -hmm. and, um, I think the challenge, too, uh, with that mystical connection that you're talking about is sometimes um, people pray and, and they don't, the thing doesn't happen. So my nephew yeah, who prayed yeah. that his mother every second his mother was in IU, ICU that she wouldn't die and she died um, and that com that's com confused him you know and so how how to hold that, that, that it's not your fault if the prayer doesn't come through or the that, that's very understandable by the way you need to endorse how deep especially to say someone whose mother's dying mm -hmm. or father's dying or spouse is dying and they don't know how they're going to handle it they don't know how they're going to bear it mm. so it's so human that they would plead, like, please, please, please. And then if the person does die, then they're dismayed by it. Or, you know, I thought you were, you know, you, you didn't hear my prayer. Mm -hmm. So it's so human to, to first endorse the humanity of that. I don't know. But what we're really looking at is this. See, it's, it's really Jesus, not my will, but thy will be done. Mm. See, into your hands I commend my spirit. That it's your will that's trustworthy. Even if I'm hanging on the cross in the process of dying, your will is trustworthy because you're unexplainably taking care of me and drawing me to yourself, not my will. So I want to hand my will over into an acceptance of your will, mm. which is the trustworthy nature of what's happening to my mother. And also I, that it's your will that I find that I go through the grieving process if she dies. It's my will that you understand you're helping me grieve her loss. Because as I come out the other side of the grieving, I see the sense that she's not dead at all. She's just no longer with me in the way she used to be with me. Mm. But uh, everything is forever. She's in glory. I mean, she's everything is forever, and I'll be with her soon enough. And so help me to learn from this loss. You know? Because the world's like this. I think a lot of wisdom comes from being touched by death and touched by loss and not being embittered by it, but kind of going deeper. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. God is taking care of me, but maybe I don't understand what that means that God's taking care of me. And um, so anyway, it's just 
I think sensitivities to things like that help me. Yeah, that's very helpful. I think that's a a moment people can come back to when they're struggling to pray, to to re-listen to that. That was really helpful for me, Jim. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So a question from Sarah. So she says, Before I was even aware of the existence of contemplation, I experienced what you described in the last episode as the sense of God's presence within. I don't actually remember ever not feeling it. I was so confident in this gift that I could not believe there would ever be a need for it to end. Then grief struck our family, and just when I assumed that relationship with God's with God as it was would stand firm and support me, it was ripped away, just as you described those times of aridity in the third mansion. What followed was five years of darkness and confusion, anger, resentment, and I finally realized fear. Once I recognized that I had let fear control me or for so long, I confessed it and asked for forgiveness, but, but I f- and I felt a release into a period of rest as though I was being required to step back and allow God to do the work of healing the wounds from those years. At some point in the middle of those five years, I was praying and it seemed as though I was being asked the question, is it God I love or is it that sense of his presence? I felt very strongly at that point that I needed to offer my love as an act of will rather than being based in feelings about God. And I promised that if I were never to feel anything toward or about God again, I would continue to love and serve him through my actions. Then she says, I don't have anyone with experience to talk to about these things, so I wanted to ask you, if it does happen that feelings do arise, and they have more so in the last few months, how do I know when it's safe to let them back in? I try to trust God for discernment, but any thoughts or advice you may have will be most welcome. Yeah, she's raising really a number of significant things here, I think, really. Um, First of all, when we look back at the path we've traveled so far that had brought us to this point, often it's a circuitous path. Mm -hmm. And, And one of the pattern, it follows different patterns. And one pattern is that we were graced with a sense of the presence of God. And not only that, sometimes we're graced with it in kind of an abiding way, you know, just it's just there. See? And we're grateful for that, and like as well we should be. And then uh, our life is turned upside down, we're thrown into turmoil. And the intensity of the pain, we lose that sense of the presence of God. And not only are we suffering from the turmoil? We were suffering from the loss of the presence of God that would sustain us in the turmoil, and we, we lose that. Mm. And um, th- that struggle can go on for a while. Yeah. And, um, uh, and then the insight comes. Is it really you that I love talking to God? Mm-hmm. Or do I love my ability to experience your presence? Mm. And can I love you without the feeling of your presence? Mm. St. Bernard Clairvaux calls this disinterested love. It's the highest form of love. It's not the love that circles back and has its basis on what we gain. But amo ovia amo, I love because I love. Mm. Like I give myself completely to you in love because you give yourself to me in love. That insight... Uh, it, it's also related, if in January we look at John of the Cross on the dark night of the soul. 
the whole at the core of St. John of the Cross's teachings is that God sees that we're attached to the ability to experience his presence, the consolation, the reassurance, which are really finite ways of experiencing infinite love. And so what God lovingly does is takes away the capacity to experience uh, finite experiences of the infinite love of God. Like we show up for our prayer and God doesn't show up for the meeting. Mm -hmm. Like where did God go? And sometimes this dark night, this deprivation of consolation is, is the openness in which we learn to trust completely on the mercy of God. And we can qualitatively break through into a deeper place that maybe we never would have come to had we not gone through the deprivation like that. But then there's another thing that comes along. All of a sudden you're going along, you come to this state of transformed aridity and clarity, and like, uh-oh, here comes some more consolations. See, like, <laughs> I'm getting the warm glow again. <laughs> and how do I know I'm not going to slip back into clinging to them mm. like that? And I, that's uh, understandable. Mm -hmm. it is. So what I, what I think it is is this. This is what helps me to see it. Uh, let, let's say in the return of the consolations, it the insight would go like this. If the consolations are one way that you grace me with the experience of your presence in my life, but I've learned by experience that these experiences of your presence are infinitely less than your presence, but it doesn't mean that you're not incarnate and present in these experiences. See, therefore, I'm to let them wash through me. I'm to open myself to them, like have your way with me. You know, like this kind of cataphatic path of, of being kind of taken up into the love of God and so on. Because I've already learned my lesson. Because the moment I turn to cling to it is mine. I fall out of the richness of your presence that's in it. And in that kind of uh, detached, equal-mindedness, in the presence of consolations or the absence of consolations, I think then we're kind of established in the in the presence of God. Mm. That's my sense of it. Mm. You know. Thank you, thank you, Jim. I'm sure that will help Sarah very much. That's a a delicate teaching you're offering there. Mm -hmm. It is. It is. Yes, it is. Uh, so Tina has a personal question about you. <laughs> She's asking um, if you would. Talk to us about your Enneagram type <laughs> and uh, your your personal strengths and what resonates for you. Okay. Well, Kristen, since you teach the Enneagram, <laughs> some session, you could have a session with me and record it. On you'd, you'd unpack my perceptions of myself on the Enneagram and kind of like re refine my insights. My my understanding, my, my understanding, the one that means I most identify with relate to is a four. Mm-hmm. On the Enneagram, it makes the most sense to me. And uh, just the wisdom of the Enneagram. I was listening to Richard again recently, a talk he was giving on the Enneagram. Of, I don't know, he gave it a few years ago. And what a profound teaching it is. Mm -hmm. It was just really a mm -hmm. deep teaching. And uh, uh, my personal strength, what would I say about my personal strengths? Um, for me, I, I've, I would say personally, is that my experience was the opposite of the previous person. Instead of uh, a time of being in the presence of God, then I lost it. Mm -hmm. I, I started out at three years old traumatized. 
and it was in the midst of the trauma I experienced the presence of God while the trauma was still going on. Mm. And the presence of God in the midst of the trauma led me to the monastery. And in the monastery then led me to all of this, six years in the monastery, that's where I got into all of this. And um, so I would say it's the presence of God that sustained me in the trauma, led me into the monastery. And then it wasn't until after I left the monastery that I could integrate the mystical experiences that were given to me in the monastery, that I could use them to bring them to bear on my unhealed trauma, mm -hmm. see, on my dissociation and so on. It really led me to, and that's where I learned it myself and how I worked with people in therapy, mm -hmm. that I could, even though the mystical union transcends the darkness of this world, it doesn't transcend it to deliver us dualistically from it, mm -hmm. but to radicalize the way we're present to it, see, touching the hurting places with love in ourselves and in the world. And that integrative process of circling back around to bring the mystical dimensions to bear on the grieving work of trauma and integration is kind of be a way of expressing something on my path, I guess. Mm -hmm. yeah. Beautiful. And re remembering your watch, is that a strength? <laughs> uh, you know what? I lost it again. <laughs> I keep losing my watch. Kristen buys me watches. There's little glow watches. And uh, I thought, oh, no, not again. I lost, I lost my And I don't leave the house either. I've searched high and low, honest to God, closets. I just can't. I don't understand it. Well, I do understand it. But I... I it's my. <laughs> well, I'm glad I asked. I'm glad I yeah, asked. Really? You, need a, you need a watch if we want you to be on yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, and I used Maureen then, which meant a lot to me because she had one, and then uh, the battery ran dead on hers. Oh. So I keep it by her chair, mm. and so I thought, well, I, I have to search my. Anyway, we got off <laughs> the wristwatches. <laughs> Anyway, all right. oh, that's sweet though. Maureen, Maureen, Maureen had match. You and Maureen had matching watches. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, uh, so this is a question from Sharon. I feel as if I have outgrown the nourishment I previously received from the liturgy, scripture, and other church offerings. I crave simplicity and honesty. It is both sad and freeing. How did the mystics continue to stay with organized religion so faithfully throughout their lives? Does this happen to others? Hmm. Yes, it does happen. Um, you know, for me, it happened to me because when I was in the monastery, I was very Catholic and this kind of this Catholicism, this mystical contemplative, but it was liturgy and Eucharist and that whole ethos and was just part of my where I grew up and so on. So then when I was sexually abused at the monastery and left, I had kind of a breakdown. Um, I left the church. I, 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 I remember thinking, I don't see how God could buy into an outfit like this, really. And I was more consoled by the Dharma. I, was, I, was, I learned the Dharma from Merton on Buddhism. It was, it was a refuge for me and also the Sufi ways and so on. And uh, I, I learned to work through all of that. I wanted to work through all of that, and and what I've done then, not just with religious life and monastic life, just humanity, just the broken nature of humanity seeking Christ and its brokenness and all of that. And I, I then I came back into my Catholicism, mm. 
again in terms of I keep the Eucharist here in my home and icons of Mary and and uh, sacred devotion to the Sacred Heart and so on. But I'm not active in my parish at all. Mm -hmm. I don't go to mass. I haven't been to mass in a long time. Mm. When I would give silent retreats, often if a priest was there to celebrate the Eucharist, it'd always be a contemplative liturgy. And uh, but I uh, so I'm very much internally sensitive to the beauty. And the reality, the mystery of it all is my lineage, my tradition, open to all traditions. Mm -hmm. But I don't, but what happens with some people, and also I got disheartened because I would go and I'd listen from the, to the pulpit and I never heard this mentioned. You know, I never heard this mentioned. I, 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 you could tell when someone's bearing witness to this, mm -hmm. like out of the depth of their heart about this union mm -hmm. and so on. And it was so... Um, I was just so disheartened by it. And then I saw those priests that really were bearing witness to this in terms of like deeply pastoral, loving priests. The pastor of my parish here, St. Monica's, has been very supportive of me, my contemplative prayer group there. And so it's it's the church, you know. So um, it, it's home base for me. But what happens with some people is, uh, and the mystics, that's how they saw it. You know, Teresa of Avila was living during the Inquisition. You know, as Saint John of the Cross, when they asked him to stop the reform, they they captured him, put him in a cell, and whipped him. And those were his theology professors, teaching him like this. So they were very aware of the brokenness of the church, the brokenness of the the brokenness, but they saw in it something deeper. That that it's the microcosm of humanity infinitely loved by God, that's ritualistically celebrated and lived. and part. But some people don't experience it that way. Mm -hmm. I just can't do it. And then I say, don't. Yeah. You know, don't. And there's a certain loneliness in that. But, but, but to the mystics and so on, you can find a certain inner connection. There's connections. And so do your own self be true. Mm -hmm. And maybe down the road that'll change again, might not change. Mm -hmm. So I think we're each following our own gifts and inclinations and staying open to what God might have in mind around the next corner. Mm -hmm. what is, uh, how does doing the Eucharist impact you, Jim, when you do it at home? Well, uh, for me, what the Eucharist is, what's so profound about it to me, first of all, there's something very mystical about this idea about God becoming present to us as our food. You take this bread and eat. Of this. this is my body. It also means like to receive Holy Communion. See, it's not to receive Holy Information. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this little, mm -hmm. little prayer is inscribed on the host. Mm -hmm. thing. <laughs> but we actually, it turns into our body. It also is very meaningful to me that if I would sit after Mass, being inside the church, metaphorically, I was inside a God who in the Eucharist was inside of me. To be sitting in the presence of God, in the presence of me, mm -hmm. felt like a very unitive kind of experience mm -hmm. to me. And I also find it very meaningful to, um, when I would go over to the church, sorry, I saw people in therapy, they gave me a place there to see therapy. I would walk over every day and sit in the back of the church there, like the, the, like the architecture of it, like uh, it's a state of consciousness in stone. Mm. And the mystery of the Eucharist and the presence of it all and sincere people coming in to sit and pray and and um, the statue of Mary right outside the, you know, the divine feminine and, the, and that. And I just, I find it consoling mm. and um, touches me. It sounds like you, you're able to bring the 
that mystical contemplative unitive sense of the rituals, the buildings that you in yeah, with if, you, then it didn't need yeah. to be at the coming from the yeah. priest. And I know other people do other things with it. You know, they stop at that level mm -hmm. where the fundamentalistic Catholicism, you know, they, yeah. people do all kinds, that's their business. But I think to take it what it's really meant to be, you know, there's a whole kind of ethos that's metaphorically expressing. I'll share a little story about Merton. I, shared it, I don't know if I did in the Merton thing or not, about devotional sincerity. Because when I was a monk in the monastery, I worked at the pig barn. And um, when I'd go in to see Merton, he'd always start off asking me, how's it going? Like, what's going on? And I said, well, I'm painting the pig barn. I worked at the farrowing house where the sows have their litters. And uh, he said, oh, what color? And I said, blue. And traditionally, blue is the color for Mary. And then he said to me, Thomas Merton said to me, in honor of our Blessed Mother. And I said, I laughed. I said, no. It's the only color they had. I, went, that's what, I, I said, I need five gallons of paint. Blue is the only thing they get. And he picked up that I laughed. Mm. He said, the problem is, he said, you're suspicious. Mm. You're not childlike enough to paint it blue in connection to the, to the interconnected like, mythic ethos of the symbolic touching of sensitivity, like the, bound, the sincerity with which we bow mm. or which we bless ourselves. Mm. The, when these things are done with devotional sincerity, there's a kind of liturgy of the body that expresses itself through these simple gestures and acts and, and so on. Yeah. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. Sharon asks, uh, she said that uh, she caught something in the transcript from a podcast that holds so much truth. But it's your very nothingness without God that makes your very presence to be the presence of God. And sh she says uh, that she, for I do feel I am nothing. And in my fear in the face of that, I had asked just previously about God's action in the world on his creation. Does he only act through us? Does he act upon disease? No one knows, of course, but just asking the opinion of someone so close to the divine. <clears throat> well, she's, this is very mysterious, what she's asking, you know, and it requires reflection because these questions she's asking, they have long histories to them. Like, how do we reflect on these things? And, but reflecting on them itself can be a way to pray. So let's say, we'll, we'll get to Eckhart too, we'll be talking a lot about this. Let's say, but poetically, we're saying that our faith teaches in the creation, God's let there be light, let there be stones and trees and stars and so on. Let's say one way of looking at that is that, uh, that, the, that the infinite presence of God is presencing itself and pouring itself out as the intimate immediacy of our very presence, the presence of others and the presence of all things, see, which is the divinity of the manifested order of all things. But this is not at all to say that we are God. To the contrary, it's to simultaneously affirm our absolute nothingness without God. For if God would cease loving us into this present moment at the count of three, at the count of three, we'd vanish because we're absolutely nothing apart 
from the presence of God, presencing itself as our presence. And that's the paradox. See, it's my very nothingness without God that makes my very presence to be the presence. And to realize that, I think, is the mystical experience. See, I, I, I taste my nothingness, but you are the infinity of my nothingness. That is, you're the presence that is manifesting and permeates thoroughly my nothingness without you, like this. But there's something else that comes with it. Um, Thomas Merton called this dread and compunction, is that the survival instinct is very strong, and what we, we sense imminent annihilation. The, the, really, it's the fear of disappearing, of not being. And therefore, the, the sensitivity of nothingness can give rise to this fear and part of the prayer is living with that fear, like walking with it, listening to it. And so in a way, the ego's right um, it's about its nothingness, but, but, it's, it's, but it's, it's confused about it. See, the ego's only confused about the nothingness of itself as it imagines itself to be real without God. But as it realizes it's not at all real without God, and it's nothingness without God, is actually the divinity of the ego too. You know, it's the holiness of my ordinariness. It's the holiness of standing up and sitting down. It's the holiness of my life. And so this is a very subtle thing that she's uh, raising here about this, which Merton called, and then he talked about faith. He talked about communal dread. He said, contemplative communities gather for what no one in the community can do. Yeah. See? Because <laughs> if we could do it, it would be us. Yes, see? yes. And so in our dread is our absolute dependence on God. Mm -hmm. And in that dependence on God, God flows through us, and God's present to us and in our being. And, in, in the, and God's also present in the mystery of a fragmented and broken world, of the, where things are fleeting and filled with suffering and brokenness. God inspires us to be nurturing, protective people, God inspires us to do what we can to heal suffering wherever it occurs. And um, uh, God inspires us to have an inner peace that isn't dependent on how any of that turns out. Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, it, if death comes, death is trustworthy. So it's a very mysterious, she's raising, there's just subtle things here. Yes, asked. and there's a lot in there that... Um is hard to grasp with with the logical mindset that we l usually learn things with. You kind of just have to sit with it slowly uh, uh, and poetically. Uh, uh, that's a big thing what you're saying. You know, there's a saying you can't get there from here. See, so the idea is the mind that stands back and says, "Explain this, explain this, explain this." Mm -hmm. That's the mind that is transcended in realizing what we're talking about. Mm. Because it, if it comes to us as information, we can write it down and say, thanks for the answer. See, I, I, I have another question. See, and I have a whole list of these questions. I'll check them off. Yeah. But, but when we sit in meditation, uh, it gets quieter and quieter and quieter, mm. more subtle, ever more delicate, ever more refined, uh, less and less able to put words to what's happening to us. Mm -hmm. see? And it's in that meditative state that the realizations of these things, this, was trying, this is what trying, Teresa means in rapture. Mm -hmm. She's where we're taken into these deep states, and in that state, God grants us the awareness of the things of God in God. But after the rapture's over, we can no longer put into words in explanatory terms 
to explain it to someone what we know, but unspeakably in God we know. And so anyway, this is the subtlety of consciousness mm -hmm. and reality. You know. um, ironically, the next question is, do you think God interacts on the physical plane? And I don't know if you can hear my... I tried to lock my dogs out this time. Oh. And okay. uh, they're, okay. they're squealing in the background that they'd like to come in. <laughs> Are they coming in? Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> Oh dear. Okay, so uh, was that God, That's Jim? Knocking that was. At the door, that was. Hear you more clearly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Were we rudely interrupted by the dog? Or is God the infinity of the mystery of the barking dog? <laughs> and it's both. It was both an interruption, and at the same time, it was God. So there you go. All right. Um, anyway, back to. Uh, it, does God interact on the physical plane? Well, I, well, again, it's a deep, very deep question. I would say in the kind of divine cosmology, um, like the philosophical theology of this question. I want to get back to the thing. It isn't. It isn't just that God acts on the physical plane, but rather God is the reality of the physical plane itself, and it's nothingness without God. Also, to use another term here, God creates all things and maintains all things according to their nature. God creates all things according to their nature. And God knows the nature of all things and contemplates the nature of all things in Christ, the word through whom all things are made. So as Thomas Aquinas says, God is more an oak tree than an oak tree could ever possibly be. Because mm. God is infinitely the essence of what an oak tree is. So when God says, let there be oak trees, God creates I, the oak treeness of God, to put it another way. In ego consciousness, we don't see that. But if we contemplate a tree, see, we begin to see the divinity of the presence of a tree. Uh, uh, Meister Eckhart says, I honestly believe, in effect what he says, if you could see just one tree, and like really, 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 really see all the tree is, you'd never have to hear another sermon again. Mm. Because every creature is like a book full of God. He doesn't mean that you wouldn't hear sermons again. But if we could be struck by the divinity of the material world, the world is God's body, that it's bodying forth the love of God. And in contemplative sensitivity, we can, we can see, which is, by the way, the spirituality of ecology. Mm -hmm. Yes, the spirituality of stewardship of the earth and... This is very related yes. to Richard Raw's lineage, uh, Francis of Assisi. Yeah, very much so, brother, son, and sister moon. Yes. You know, the moon is our sister, mm -hmm. and death is our sister, and the sun is our brother, mm -hmm. and giving sermons to the birds and to the wolf. Yes. And uh, uh, there's a lovely Irish story. This is also big in Celtic spirituality. There was an Irish saint, mystic, I can't forget who it was right now, but uh, it says he was sitting out in a field. And he was dying, and he was in a wheelchair or something. He had a blanket over him out in this pasture near the monastery where he lived. And it says as he was sitting there out in the sun, he died. <laughs> and when he died, a horse came over. Excuse <laughs> me. A horse came over and put his head in the saint's lap and wept. <laughs> 
I love that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that interconnected. Yeah. Sometimes we feel that with animals, yeah. too. Oh, like yeah. a, a presence or a mm. con. Cardinal Newman once said, animals are more mysterious to us than angels. Mm. Because angels are immaterial persons. See, But the, but the consciousness of the animal, mm -hmm. what is the divinity of animal consciousness? What is its holiness? Mm. We can sense its holiness. And it's mysterious. So anyway. I bet we have some... Horse lovers listening that would be able to tell many stories like that one you told. Um, yeah, beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> um, what tickles you so much about it, Jim? I, I love stories like that. Was I love these? It's like the little flowers of Saint Francis. Mm. It's filled with these little stories. Yeah. You know, so at one level, they're extremely childlike, mm -hmm. but they childlike in a way that bypasses logic. Yeah. And the heart, in hearing it, causes joy. Yeah. Because it bears witness to something unexplainable, see, and, and precious, see. And there, in Merton's words, it helps us not to be suspicious mm. see? that everything is unexplainably holy in all directions. And it's the ability to be disarmed by the incomprehensible stature of simple things. And so these stories are like that to me. You know, I think they're source of joy really yes real yeah. joyful laughter the joy of, yeah, of the pres it presence of god in the yeah, yeah. i love it yeah. um a question from hillary and um she's been reading the book the interior castle and she asked a question that I, i've heard asked uh, by other people so she says after reading the first couple of chapters i'm having trouble with some of her ways of talking about herself and about women calling herself stupid several times and saying we women are slow and need instruction in everything and uh so she's just wondering about that yeah she does do that mm -hmm. she'll say you know we women are uh, emotional and we need she, she talks like that about herself and there's a good example of culture yeah because that was a cultural assumption this is why this is why um saint john of the cross writes to one of the nuns of Carmel, who's having these mystical experiences. And he says, I know that you don't understand this theologically. And he did, because he was in seminary, he was a priest, and she didn't understand it because she wasn't allowed to study theology. Mm. And Teresa wasn't either. Yeah, wow. Unbelievable, the patriarchal yes. thing. That was their world that they lived Terrible. in. Terrible. But, but what's interesting about Teresa, when you read her life, and so on, she would do that. Because she knew how to stay under the radar mm. of bishops and priests in power who yeah. think she's getting uppity. And then she was, you just read her writing, she was a very forthright, mm -hmm. clear-minded person. And when you read the writings on the foundations and the politics of it, you know, and the stories of her life, she's one of her biggest crosses is having to put up with priests who are so clueless about this. <laughs> it's been, it's been, she said it's been one of her biggest, she was very direct yeah. about People who don't understand this and they don't get this, and and um, and uh, so I think both of those are going on with her. Mm -hmm. She was um, she was very smart that way. Yeah, she knew how to she knew how to play the scene, mm -hmm. come under the radar and be true to herself contextually. Yeah, because she know. may have written a little like this, so when the writing was in front of the Inquisition, she didn't get whipped, but she didn't yeah. act this way her life spoke a different story about someone confident yeah. with a lot of power, a lot of influence. Yeah. yeah. 
And, and also she bears witness on the, really the anima and animus, the masculine and the feminine. Mm-hmm. And just very clear that power is qualitatively deeper than force. Mm-hmm. You know, And uh, to, to, to power is richer and more t- efficacious than force. Mm-hmm. And um, she had, anyway, good question, yeah. Well, Jim, now you've admitted you're a fraud on the Enneagram. You fours are very emotional. <laughs> we are. We actually, we are. But if you're an introverted four, you don't let anybody see it, okay. except, under, except under special circumstances. You're very stoic about everything. But inside, you oh, man. This is why I think I'm so big on, on bhakti love or devotional love, mm. the heart center. I, f- I feel it much more coming from the heart center than uh, like the nuptial mystics. I, I so relate like bhakti yoga also or Sufism is this way. Yeah. I just really, I just, it's, it's, I, I experience it as a love energy mm-hmm. or as a love presence. Mm. Yeah. So Kristen asks, can you guide us on the use of social media in the context of the contemplative approach? Sometimes social media, media and contemplative spirituality seem almost mutually exclusive. Yes. Well, first of all, um, to be on this path, we need to be kind of prudent and discreet about social media because we can get addicted to it, tied into it, Mm -hmm. and kind of monitoring other people's opinions to our latest thing that we put on Instagram and how many likes do we get on You know, there's all that. We need to be very careful not to get into that. But something else I've been just amazing on on, Instagram you know, with even my talks, if you put on James Finley videos, there's just tons and tons of videos mm-hmm. that I gave over the years. Yeah. And if you put in Teresa of Avila, just beautiful lectures on Teresa, on John of the Cross, on Thomas Merton, on Dorothy Day, on Rilke, on these different teas. So the, 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 if you go to those sources, if you go to those sources, the internet can be really, we're using the internet now. Yeah. We're using it now. So I think if we use the source as a form of a modality of Lexio Divina, mm-hmm. you know, modality of, of contemplative instruction, yeah. it's, a very, it's very providential because it lets us do this mm-hmm. in a way that we couldn't do without it. Yeah. And so I think it's a matter of using discretion yeah. of, of what you watch and don't watch and, and just become aware of this, know how to just keep searching out through word searches and... Um, just see mm-hmm. what this means. Yeah, I think yeah. it comes back to your teaching too, Jim, where you talk about um, the contemplative ways, realizing that uh, only God has the last word on who you are and how you're seen and how you're loved. And and I think social media um, can really uh, powerfully try and have the last word, or, or you look to social media to have have the word to give you the confirmation. And so. Um, the contemplative you path, know, if you could, de- if you could detach from that, that piece of it is. Uh, you know, Thomas Merton once said in the monastery, he was talking about the cloistered monks and the community and the contemplative, and he, and he talked about people interiorly called to follow a path. I think he was thinking of his own calling to live as a hermit, and people can have a calling. And he said that a contemplative community supports the prophetic calling of an individual in the community. Mm. He said we need to be very careful not to buy into the ideology of the group, the collective assumption of the norm mm. is having the final say. It well may be a norm yeah. that the community follows. It might be a lineage there or a tradition there. That, and we need to see all that with respect. 
But we always need to do, sometimes we're called to something. We're called to be faithful to something in a way that might be quite new or different than the people around us are used to. Yes, <clears throat> yeah. And so we have to really discern, is this self-will? <clears throat> or do I need, to, with the grace of God, like prudent courage to see what is, what's asking me? So what happens with mass media, <clears throat> it, it, we, get, we buy into it at the most superficial level. Yeah. You know, so we get a lot of collective dislikes. We're devastated. Yeah. And realize it's not based on anything. Right. And we're addicted to it and so on. So it's good to be sensitive to this. And the, the grace is something, but also the things to be careful of. Yes, yeah. I'm so grateful for that question. Well, Jim, I think that's probably uh, plenty of questions for our first session, but it looks like we're going to need a second one. So we'll look forward to uh, going deeper into listener questions. It's been a great set of questions today. So thank you for answering them. Yeah. Yes, very nice. I should reiterate that uh, each and every one of these questions offers gratitude for you and, and all you're giving us through the podcast. So thank you again, and uh, we'll look forward to next time. Thank you. I'm grateful I can do it. It blesses me, too. So beautiful. And big shout-out for Corey, who manages uh, yeah. getting these questions put together so helpfully f um, for us to, to go through. So yeah. thank you, Corey. Yeah, it makes it possible, yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. Please consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend who might be interested in learning and practising with this online community. To learn more about the work of James Finley, please visit jamesfinley.org. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.